Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's kind of a different approach here. We have both you Facebook Live, and we have actually people in the house. Can I hear the people in the house say, what's up? <laughs> all right, okay, all right, help me out, help me out, because uh, I'm trying to get uh, my pad here to work, and it's just about ready to work. Uh, we have had an interesting 12 weeks. Uh, it's been uh, amazing to see that God has gotten us through it, and we've had have been challenged. Uh, we have been hit to the core. Uh, it has been very uh, difficult for some, the uncertainty, um, the, the idea that we had to battle through being inside and being told that we couldn't get out. And now, just as we are about 12 weeks or so over into our 13th week of dealing what we were talking about a couple of weeks about COVID, and starting and embarking in a new journey of going forward, knowing that we have to get back to a, some kind of normalcy, now we have been um, hit with, unfortunately, which has been around our society and our civilization for a very long time. We've been dealing with, in the last couple of weeks, with racial discrimination. Yes, it's a, it's a very big, difficult, challenging word and a tough discussion. But we as the church have to talk about it because we are the church. We are the ones that bear the name of Jesus Christ, and we must come forward and, um, and asking that question. I'm going to ask my wife to just hand me my, my phone for just a second because I'm going to need it if she can hear me right now. Joy, can you hear me? Yeah, she's not, she's not listening to me. Because she's got her, earf her earphones on. Sorry, guys. But uh, I have, um, thank you. But I have a story to share with you that is, is necessary because of the fact that we have not been dealing with, um, with this so-called racial injustice the way that we would like to as a church. And we have to, to be challenged. So I want to share a story that actually my, my daughter sent or put on her Facebook and we've had to uh, deal with this as a whole, as a family. My wife and I have been dealing with this for now a couple of weeks and had to be challenged with what was in front of us. And there's a story here on her post that was gripping to me. Uh, it was about a young man who was 31 years old, uh, wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to, he got home late from work and he wanted to take care of his wife and he wanted to make sure his wife was ready for the next day. And so he went to the gas station late at night to make sure his wife was gassed up for the next day for her vehicle to be gassed up. And I remember those days when I used to do that for my wife. As I get a little bit older, it hasn't been as much and shame on me, I should be doing that. So here he was, he was doing that. It was late at night and there was a white woman who was also there at the gas station. And she saw him, and she was troubled, and he smiled at her, looked at her, and stared, and he noticed that she seemed uncomfortable. So she pulls out. He's still there. He's approaching the gas pump, and he noticed that she goes not too far from the gas station across the street, and he notices her on the phone. Within minutes, there were officers there at the gas station. They came, and they questioned this man. Now, this man, um, the post that it's shared from, from the perspective of his wife. This man is a, a Christian, lovely wife, two beautiful boys, handsome boys, a beautiful family. And um, here he is trying to just get some gas. And this woman seems suspicious and has to call the cops because apparently they heard that there was a robbery in the area. There was something that was going on. 
And so they, she felt the need to call the cops on this black man. He's sitting there, and the officers start questioning him, what are you doing here? Whose car is this? And he's sitting there, and lo and behold, they're ready to handcuff him because apparently there was suspicion and there was questioning of the area without even asking him any other details. He was just a black man. They were looking for a black man, but they had no description. They just figured he was a black man. And here he was, right to be handcuffed, and a white man happened to show up and said to the, to the officers, no, it's not him. I know it's not him because he came from a different direction. It's got to be another person. It's not him. So here is a black man who's trying to get gas in his car to do an incredible act for his wife. And he's questioned for his color. He's questioned in America. What's challenging me was when I was reading this, his wife goes on to say, and now he was suspect to be a, because he was fit in the description of being black, he was humiliated. He was emasculated. He was angry. He was helpless. He was on his way to being cuffed when a white man stepped in. Why did a white man have to step in to set this man free? Because she went on to say this, an older white man told the officers they were wrong and that the husband had come from different direction and that the robbery they men had mentioned. And the officers released my husband after this, not because my husband told them multiple times that he was innocent, not because there were two car seats in the back of my car. My husband's voice meant nothing. The only voice that penetrated those badges was a white one. My hardworking, kind-hearted, silly husband was guilty because of his skin. And there was absolutely nothing he could do about it. The sight of him caused a woman to call the police. He said he wanted to scream. He wanted to fight. He wanted to yell at the top of his voice. And his top of his lungs, and he was a man, and he mattered. And if he had, he would be deemed aggressive, but he would be resisting. He would be resisting, so he, he said he kept telling himself, he said, to get home. I got to get home. I got to get home to my boys. I have four children. I can't imagine that. And lo and behold, he knew that these men would kill him and justify it. He, could, he, he came home and a changed man. I was a changed woman. We cried and we prayed and we, and we have healed since then it took, that it took place. But issues still at once felt somewhat distant became a reality. So when you dismiss the plight of a black man in America... You dismiss the ever-present fear with our community. You are willfully ignorant. If you think people made this up or only apprehended by the police when they are deserving it, you are part of the problem. Open your eyes, but more importantly, open your hearts to the reality of being black in America. We don't get the luxury of ignoring it because we live it. The picture of my precious family that he shows on here is my husband with my two little cuddly boys. This is what happens. You and I don't understand that as non-blacks, as white people, we don't understand. I grew up with a different perspective than the typical white person. I grew up in a home where my parents did not speak English. I grew up in a home where I had to speak Italian to communicate with my family. In fact, all of the Italians that immigrated from our hometown, most of them came to Stanford, Connecticut, 
all of the immigrants there. When we were growing up, it was challenging for me to see my parents as parents because I had to learn English from a television. So even me as an American, but as a white person in the majority race, I will never understand or feel what it's like to be an African-American, a black person in this world. I will never know the fear of the struggle. My children, when they walk the streets, my wife and I, we go outside, we don't ever have to be concerned about our skin tone. We have to be concerned about being Italian, but we don't have to be concerned about being of skin tone because we will never be questioned. But I don't know what it's like. And today, I share this with you with passion because I am not here to outweigh the justified or the non-justified or unjustified situations that occur in our society regarding police brutality, non-black people's view on blacks. We are not going to discuss identity politics or lean on them for a basis of resolving a problem in our country prior to its inception. As the body of Christ, I would like to reflect on biblical justice, the need for self-examination, and self-reflection, which would hope to lead to repentance. We can make the difference as a church. We can if we are willing to look at ourselves and ask God to change us. It must begin with biblical justice, not political social justice. And I will explain. And so when we're looking at this, we're talking about race. Really, we understand that race is, there's only one race, the human race, but we're different people groups. And within each t- different people groups, we have the ethos, the, 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 the ethnicity of our backgrounds. And we have different perceptions, and we'll talk about that. We have to see that we have a lens that is different from others. And we have to challenge ourselves. This is a hard message. It's uncomfortable. But in order for us to make a difference as the church, as the body of Christ, we have to be willing to look at uncomfortable situations, uncomfortable discussions. We have to be willing to discuss them and not shy away from them or be silenced. We have to stand up. And the Bible tells us to do so. God himself desires biblical justice. Because he did. He loves justice. And he loves righteousness. And so we have to see that. So reflection leading to repentance, that's what we want to talk about. So what is biblical justice? There's a definition um, from the outreach article I, I want to share with you. Biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, in the cosmos whole by upholding both goodness and impartiality. It stands at the center of true religion, according to James, who says that the kind of religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after all. Orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 1.27. The article continues and says, Justice flows from God's heart and character. As true and good, God seeks to make the object of his holy love whole. This is what motivates God throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament in judgments on sin and injustice. These judgments are both individual and corporate in scope. One of the greatest injustices, as the article continues, we succumb to individually is self-righteousness. The belief that we do not need Jesus, but are just good and right apart from him. So we, ha- we, we settled that in saying that's biblical justice for now. But what has the church been silent? Why has the church been silent regarding racial discrimination? In an article by Religion and Politics, An African-American said this, Martin Luther King Jr. once said that when it came to issues of justice, the church was often the taillight rather than the headlight in society. 
By that, he meant that the church often followed long, long after changes in the racial status quo were already taking place in different arenas, from politics to entertainment to corporations. And that's what we often see throughout U.S. history. Though many Christians were actively engaged in struggles for racial equality, they tended to be in the minority. The majority of white Christians, at least, did change, but only as a national sentiment was already moving toward more openness and more equality. The change was slow and a little reluctant. See, I believe the church has been silent, and this is something for me. I want to tell you something. I am not putting, if you're feeling uncomfortable, someone out there on Facebook, if you're feeling uncomfortable, I think it's a good place to be right now because I'm uncomfortable. I have felt uncomfortable, and I've had to ask these questions, and I've had to also realize that some of the things that have often took over me and hijacked my thoughts and not focusing on biblical justice. He says, I see, I believe the church has been silent due to the fear of offending others. I think that's one of the things that we're afraid of. We're the, we're, there's a fear of identity politics. We don't want to associate with identity politics because they have injustices of itself according and against God. The fear of promoting a political party agreeing with a political pundit, or watching the wrong news channel. See, we're afraid of that. We see, we look at justice as a liberal term when it's a biblical term. And it's all over the Old Testament and into the New. God makes it clear. And whether, you know, it's your party or not, unfortunately, the, sh the church should be the headlight to speak up against this sin. But we have been too late. Politics has hijacked our position in this matter. If justice is no longer considered a liberal term, then it's a biblical word, then what do we do? We need to start joining God because we cannot fight a secular fight and make it sacred. We cannot join a political party and let them speak on our behalf. We must stand upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must stand on biblical justice and we must join God in his passion to want to reach those who are oppressed. We can no longer be silent. We must stand with God. And that's important for us to understand. That's why it's, as we ask these questions, I'm being challenged. And as you can see in my passion, God has challenged me in the last two weeks more than ever. Here's another question. What does the, what does the church's silence on this injustice communicate? Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church, a 25,000 people church, along with John Gray, Relentless Church, came together last week talking about bridging the divide, standing in the gap, building bridges. And as Stephen Furtick asked John Gray some questions about this, this is how John Gray, an African-American pastor, spoke up. He said, in this season, silence is agreement. I don't need you to quietly tell me you're praying. I need you to publicly say this is wrong. In fact, I'll add that to John Gray. It's sin. It's wrong. Because God calls it sin. And we must stand strong. The church's silence on racism has communicated an unwillingness to speak against this sin. The silence has told our black community, you are on your own. We don't stand with you. We believe this is your fight. No more. We must stand on biblical justice. We must stand. We have to. We're called to it. And so it's important for us to also realize, too, that how should the church respond? Well, there's many things in which we see in the scriptures. We must stand with biblical justice. We must identify and join God's passion and his compassion for our heart for those whom he created, the Amaku Dei. 
God has created man in his own image, and in his image, he's created them intrinsically and transcendent in value, equally valued. And so we have to be challenged as a church to stand on that because that's what we hold to. We don't hold to a political view. We don't hold to a political pundit. We don't hold to a news channel. We hold to what God says. We must get ahead of it, be the headlight, and stand for biblical justice. Why do we say that? Because Micah 6, 8, God says that he said, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? See, the word mercy in the Hebrew means hesed. It's an unconditional love of God that has been displayed and, and given through Abrahamic covenant all the way through Jesus, the Messiah. It is what we stand upon, the unconditional covenant and the unconditional love of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have the mercy, the word of God, and we have hesed love, and we have the love and grace of God. And then we have mishpah, which is the word for justice in Hebrew. And in justice, it emphasizes action. So we see, therefore, the word mercy is an attitude or motive behind the action. And so, in other words, it's saying this, to walk with God, then, we must do justice out of merciful love. That's what it's because we need to be treating people impartially and justifiably. You know, even it says here in Psalm 68, 4 and 5, sing to the Lord, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, Yahweh. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. That means in his very being, God is a protector of the widows and a protector for those who are fatherless. God desires biblical justice. That's who he is. He's just. We must stand on it. And that's what we see throughout the scriptures in Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. It says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge justly, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. See, what's being said here and even in Proverbs is God defends those who are being oppressed. I've said this to my African-American friends, my black friends. I said, you know what? God's more angry and grieving over this than you are. That's as true as it gets. Why? Because God created man and he created Man in his image, he created, whenever you create something, you love it. But God created, and he loves us more than we can love one another. He loves our children more than we can love our children. And I know some of you mamas will say, no, no, I can't believe that. Yes, God does love your children more than you love your children, mamas and papas. Because here's the thing. God loves justice. It's a part of who he is. So we must Stand on it because we can't oppress. The word oppression means to violate. It means to exploit. It means even in some cases to rape. We have to understand that God stands for justice. See, God is offended when his people neglect the poor or those oppressed. Our sin of omission has been one of the greatest sins in the church. And the church has failed to address this sin and pursue justice. Now, don't get me wrong. I am putting myself first in line. I have failed. I have fallen. Before you guys even think, I'm trying to, you're like, Bruno, what are you doing here? I'm not hitting you with anything. This is the word of God. 
I'm standing before God with self-reflection and self-examination saying, God, it needs to start with me. God, have mercy on me. I have failed. I have been quiet. I've been afraid of identity politics. I've been afraid that if I say something that people will be offended. I'm afraid that if I do that, I'm going to lose people. I've realized now God has made it clear to me through the scriptures. I have to stand up. I have to speak up. That's a self-reflection. That's a self-examination. And each one of us who bear the name of Jesus Christ have to have a self-examination time, a self-reflection saying, how do we stand up? How do we defend what God already defends? How do we join God? We speak up. We speak up. But I'm not joining any political party. I'm not joining any political pundit. I'm not joining any news media. I am joining God. And that's what we're called to do. And so if someone says something, I'm going to examine it saying, does the Bible say that? Because then I'll stand on it. And that's what we have to do. We need to defend their rights. Because sometimes we're always defending our rights. We need to defend their rights. And so this is why it's important for us to grasp and realize that whoever oppresses a poor man insults the maker. But whoever is generous to the needy honors him. Because why? Because as the Bible says, Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So I want to evaluate a couple of things here. I share these points. One, one thing to make clear, I share these points um, not to a certain people group, not trying to encourage anyone. This is a challenge for each one of us. This is not about stats, as I said earlier. It's not about trying to stand for what. I just want to talk about evaluation, self-examination, reflection, because I believe reflection can lead to repentance. So here are some of the things in which we want to talk about first. In light of the discriminatory culture in our nation, non-black Christians need to evaluate. We need to evaluate. We need to understand what are they going through. We need to understand what are they being challenged with. And honestly, I don't know. That's why I often ask my friends who are black, what is it that we need to do better? I think the first thing is we need to change our posture. We need to change our posture. As I said earlier, I grew up in a different home than maybe you did. As I mentioned earlier, my parents were immigrants. My parents died as Italians. They never became Americans. My father didn't speak English and he couldn't put a sentence together. We have many immigrants around our city in Stanford, Connecticut. And I can assure you, my godfather had the COVID and, and he made it through. But he's, he's from Italy. And many of us who are there, we had to grow up and run the affairs of our, of our parents. We had to write out the checks and explain everything that was coming through the mail. Every time something, my father would always be fearful that if he mistreated us, we would go against him and, and try to put something against him by telling him something's in the mail and it's really not. He didn't know. He, he was inferior. He was subject to us when it came to that. I'm going to assure you I wasn't an angel when I was growing up. And so being that, it was difficult because I didn't have parents there to help me with my homework. I didn't have someone to tell me whether I was speaking English well or not. I had to learn my English in front of the TV. That explains why sometimes I mess up my words or I have to ask my wife often, what does this mean? Not because I'm a college graduate or I have my master's level, but because sometimes innate in me is that I still struggle having my first language being Italian. But in all of this, I have had... Bias and prejudice toward my own family. I know you might look at me and say, wait a minute, what are you saying? What I'm telling you is that I have looked at my parents and all the Italians that I live, lived with lesser than. I've had prejudice, even discrimination in my heart toward my own people. 
My parents were uneducated. They came here at a third grade level. They never went to school beyond that. It was hard for me to look up to my parents. That was part of my testimony. I was an angry young man who didn't deserve it. I deserved parents like all of my white friends. That's what I used to say. I struggled with the American values. My wife tells me, you don't see the, fl- I don't see the white, I don't see the American flag, I see the Italian flag. I, I'm, I, you, can't, you can't judge me for that. That's what I see. But I'm an American, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful my parents came here from Italy. But I had my own discrimination. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what someone looks like, if someone has those same thoughts towards a black person. I can't imagine, because it's on me. I have those feelings. I didn't have an issue more with black people than I had with my own people. But it's difficult that we have to build bridges. We have to realize that that's what we have to do. This is a hard conversation, uncomfortable, but necessary. You know, when non-blacks, when a person speaks up about black lives, black lives matter. I understand it's a political group and we would not stand for it. But when a person, I would love to change that whole phrase and say God loves black people because he created them and we as the church must be willing to listen but we have to listen because they're in pain right now they're tired they're exhausted of hearing and seeing their own people being killed they have been seeing senseless and evil killings in their society for over 400 years and they don't just want to hear it from us what we need to do is learn how to listen they don't want to hear anything other than that They don't want us to come up with a solution for them. You know, they want us to listen, and they don't want us to have selective hearing. I've been around black people for a long time, many. You'll see my postings here on Facebook, my pictures. And I was hanging out with my friends in the 1990s, and I remember trying to speak up for the black person. And my friend turned to me, and he said, Bruno, listen, man, I know you mean well. I know you want to be with us and almost practically be black. But listen, you can't speak for us. You're not a black person. And it just shocked me. I said, wow. I said, I'm just trying to help. And he goes, you're not helping me. You're hurting me. I don't know. I know you don't mean that, but you're hurting me. It was sobering. It was humbling because I thought I was for them. I was actually working against them. They just need someone to listen. Bro, I just need you to listen to me. And it was, I wanted to solve the problem. I wanted to defend them. They're like, you're not defending us. You're hurting us. See, we don't need, our posture needs to change. We don't need to defend ourselves with stats. We don't need to tell that we love black people. We don't need to make another social media post more than we need to listen. Whatever posture we use outside of prayer, repentance, and lament, we just need to listen. Because if not, black people are just going to tune out. We need to tune in and listen. Secondly, we need not to dominate the conversation and tell them how they should feel. We, sh- we do not need to tell them to get over it. We do not need to, to just sit back and say, hey, you know, this is not about you. It's about everybody. Their house is on fire, and they need attention right now. You know, if you have a, 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 you know, you have a development, there are all the houses there, 30 houses. Every house matters. Every life in that and all those homes matter. But right now, if a black man's house was on fire, we wouldn't go, hey, everyone else matters. Everyone. We would go to that black man's house and try to help that family because right now they're on fire. And we need to say that they matter right now more than ever. Right now, we need to have this discussion. We need to listen. 
See, when I'm in pain and anguish and grieving and suffering through a trial, I don't need another article or principle or someone to tell me what I should do. I just need someone to listen to my heart. That's what we need. That's one thing. Two, we have a perspective. It needs to change. There's nothing wrong with having a perspective. Every one of us has a perspective. Every one of us is challenged. There's nothing wrong with having a perspective. I have a perspective. You have a perspective. A black person has a perspective. All people have. Other ethnic groups have perspectives. But we have to be willing to listen to every perspective, not assume that an Italian or someone, a Filipino, should do what an Italian does. No. Everybody has a perspective. And as we look at it, we have to understand that also that perspective is sometimes derived from an urban setting, a suburban setting, or a rural setting, but our lens needs to change. We also have to understand that we have stereotypes, we have bias, we have prejudice, and we have discrimination. I was looking at a a comic, it's kind of a cute comic, although the subject is not so cute, but you have a chicken and a cat. The chicken is watching TV, and it says, all cats are dangerous. So the chicken was like, oh, wow. So as the cat was watching that on the TV, the, the, the chicken was watching the cat on TV, the chicken started to develop a stereotype. All cats are dangerous. So then the next step goes where now a bias starts. So whenever the chicken sees a cat, all the chicken sees is that cat is dangerous. Doesn't even talk to the cat, doesn't even get to know the cat. That cat is dangerous. Then that bias develops to where the chicken now owns a grocery store and the cat comes into the store. And now it's gone to a prejudice of saying, you better not mess anything up in my store. This is mine. How dare you come in here because you're dangerous. And starts, you know, just it shows like a grr, like just, just grrring over at the cat. And the cat has a thought over his head and says, I'm just here to buy milk. And so that becomes prejudice because no matter what, when we hear that all cats, he hears that all cats are dangerous, he thinks every cat is dangerous. So now discrimination comes when we act on it. And so the chicken kicks the cat out of the store for not doing anything wrong just because he's a cat. And that's what's happening with each one of us. We have stereotypes, we have biases, we have prejudice and discrimination. I want to believe that none of us here in this room would ever want to discriminate against any people group for any matter. But we might have a bias. I do. We may be prejudiced. I'm prejudiced. I have prejudices. And there are times where I I know I have stereotypes, my gosh. But each one of us has to realize that we have those perspectives. We need God to change us. But with biblical justice, we got to go even further on our perspective. Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy that's now in a movie, in his book he wrote this. He said, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. My work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of a character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated, 
An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, and a nation. Fear and anger can make us resentful and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. See, the closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy, we all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of a merited grace. He is a believer in Christ, and he's been challenged to stand firm. We need a different perspective. We need a biblical justice perspective. We need to stand on God's love for mercy and righteousness. Number three, passion is God's biblical justice as he does, is passionate, and this is the core of who he is. Justice means to make right. Justice is first and foremost a relational term, people living in right relationship with God and one another. So if we're living in right, right relationship with God, then we must live in right relationship with one another. As God is just in love, and so we are called to do just and live in love. Biblical justice is the heart and passion of God. And we look even at Leviticus 24, 22, because where it says the word mispah, we see the word in Hebrew, it means the rule of law. And what I love about biblical justice is that it is equal to all people. Biblical justice means that people will be acquitted and punished equally. Every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status, everyone is treated equally. Anyone who commits the same sin or wrongdoing, and according to the law and the scriptures, must receive the same penalty. Unfortunately, historically, most blacks have received excessive punitive measures for misdemeanors, not receiving justice. In other words, there was no law on their side. We can't stand for this because we stand on biblical justice. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We understand in Imagu Dei, God created us in his image. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we now who are marred in sin are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of the believer, Romans 8, 29. And so as the Imagu Dei continues from the Old Testament all the way through today, we understand that God is created for that purpose. Us to stand for him. But we have it through Christ. God has shown no partiality toward man, offers the same grace, the mercy, and love to all people. And as we view in the scriptures and the centrality of the gospel in the Imagu Dei, we have to understand that God offers it to all. But it's only efficacious to those who believe. And the unconditional love through Christ. And I believe that we have to be accountable for that. Because even as we see in 2 Corinthians, it's very clear. As you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 through 21, you see this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Because we were exploiting God. We were enemies of God. We were spitting in his face. We were yelling, crucify him, crucify him to Jesus. But then it went on. He says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You know what reconciliation means in the, in the Greek? It means to take a hostile situation and bring forth friendly situation. So God took us from the hostility of our sin and brought us into a friendly peace relationship with God. It was Christ, the blood of Jesus, the substitutionary atonement of, the God, of, of Christ, the gospel message that we so rant about every week. And what we just continually preach. But here's the kicker. 
That is, in God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, it's grace, and entrusting us, committing, establishing in us the message of reconciliation. Now, what is that message of reconciliation? The taking that which is hostile and bring forth peace, from hostility to peace. And here's what it says this in the last part of it. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're representative of Christ. And as we are representative of Christ, we have to be proactive in reconciliation. And God is making his appeal through us. Meaning God, the grace that he's given to us through his son, is making appeal through us as his vessel to make appeal of this hostility turning to peace. He's making appeal to us not to simply just proclaim it, but to act on it. And so as we're acting on it, we're seeing that God desires to reconcile all people, but he wants to use us as his people. He wants to use us to reach those who are far away from God. He wants to use us, because this is what it says in verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love what a commentator said. He said this, the ministry of reconciliation therefore involves more than simply explaining to others what God has done in Christ, it requires that one become an active reconciler. Like Christ, a minister of reconciliation plunges into the midst of human tumult to bring harmony out of chaos, reconciliation out of estrangement, and love in the place of hate. That's what he's called us to do. So this is self-examination. This is a reflection my prayer, my hope, our prayer, Pastor Dennis and I and the leadership team and all of staff and the entire church, we want to pray that God would please put on us repentance and lament. Next week, we're going to be getting in contact with you. We're going to offer a time of prayer. It'll be, you'll be able to contact Pastor Dennis, and we're going to try to do a Zoom call, and, and we're going to try to have prayer together because we need to repent and lament over what's going on in our nation. We need to stand for biblical justice we need to stand for what God's heart and his passion is for. I want to join him. I just want to join God. That is my passion. And I hope it's yours. Because enough's enough. We've got to speak up. We've got to defend the defenseless. It's, it's time for us to do that as the church. We've got to be the headlamp. We've got to be the headlight. We've got to get ahead of this. God's called us to it. I want to encourage you this week to consider this. If it's uncomfortable, it's okay. Let it be uncomfortable. If it's not uncomfortable, I'm concerned. And I hope that you have uncomfortable discussions because we can't be a nation where righteousness exalts God if we're not willing to look at our wrongs and our sins. It's time to grieve. It's time to repent. It's time to listen. It's time to learn. It's not time to be dominant and defend our right. We have no rights. God defends us. It's time to stand for him. I want to encourage you this week. Trust the Lord. Let me pray for you before we end our service today. And let me encourage you to continue on as we spend another three more weeks talking about, in our sermon series, let's talk about race. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, for this message because it's changed my life. And I pray that it will change others as well. God, may we not just share the gospel. May we live it. I don't know what this looks like. We're not sure, but I know you'll show us. 
We're confident, Lord, that you'll lead us because this is your church. We just want to join you for biblical justice. Enough is enough, Lord. We want to stand on your side, joining you to stand for those who are oppressed, poor, fatherless, defenseless, and those who are being mistreated in the Imago Dei. God, please stir in us a passion for you and for this cause, for the cause of Christ, for reconciling people back to yourself. God, we love you and we thank you for what you're already going to do in advance. Bring honor and glory to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on Facebook Live. We're excited to see you again next week. Please share it with others as we look to God in discussing these very difficult discussions, but trying to find a solution. The ultimate solution is in Christ. God bless you guys.